Let's just pray before we begin, shall we? Father, I just thank you for the revelation I've received even this morning, that our God is Lord over all this earth. And Father, we declare you as our King and as our Lord this morning. And we thank you that the affairs of men are in your hands. But more specifically, Lord, the daily details of my life are in your hands. Thank you, Father, that every Christian knows that you have our way mapped out and we are caught and held in the palm of your hand. Father, this morning, as we turn to your word and look at it, I just pray, Father, that we might see again the magnificence of this book that we hold in our hands. Father, that we should realize just what tragedy it is that people around this country today have the Bible on a shelf and not in their hearts. And Father, I would pray in the name of Jesus that, Father, even through these studies, people should take their Bibles down and blow the dust from them, that they might open up and, and see what a, a treasury of wisdom is found therein. Father, I pray we should be Christians who in our daily lives and in our thinking and in our words and in our innermost thoughts of our hearts should show forth the Word of God. Father, we long for this country again to turn to your word. But Father, we declare your lordship over this land of ours. And we speak over this land and we say Jesus is Lord. And Father, as we say that, we say it in faith. Father, believing that the people of this nation of darkness will see a great light. And that Father, unlike the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were blinded by it and went their way to destruction, that Father, our nation might see that light and turn to that light and have it revealed in their hearts. Father, in some measure, use these tapes and these studies to do just that. Oh, we thank you for your grace. Just anoint us this morning. We ask you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. In the last Bible study, we started having a look at the Word of God. And uh, last time, I told us what we were going to do. You see, for the first five basic Bible studies, we've been talking about doctrine, but we've assumed something about this Bible. We've assumed that this is the living Word of God. We've assumed it's authoritative. We've assumed that God speaks through His Word to us and to our hearts. And if you notice, and if you've heard the... Uh, tapes, I don't know how many there are now in the last five uh, basic courses, but if you've listened to those, every single Bible study has been absolutely full of Scripture. But what I want to do in this course is this, I want to turn a full 180 degrees, and instead of looking out from the Bible, I want to have a look at the Bible. Because sooner or later, as I said last time, you're going to meet someone who doesn't believe what you believe about the Bible. And when you hit them, it's no good lamely saying, well, I believe it, and don't you confuse me. It's no good saying that, you know, and closing your eyes to these things. You've got to have a few answers. And last time, I spoke about some of the difficulties I had in my thinking when I actually came to the Word of God. And last time was not a proof connected with the Bible. I simply showed that, first of all, the Bible is self-consistent. That is, it gives one message, and no matter which part you look at, uh, it gives the same message. Secondly, I defined what we as fundamentalists believe, but I also then said it leaves us with five main questions that we've got to answer. 
And the good news is, I'm not going to ignore those questions. In the next four Bible studies, including this one, we're going to answer the five questions that I spelt out last time. We're going to be doing it quite rapidly as well. But this morning, I'm going to do something. I'm going to actually cover the first two questions that I asked. And these are questions that you ought to have asked yourself, and I hope you've already got an answer to them. All right? The first question we're going to answer this morning is this one. First of all, what evidence is there that this book really is the Word of God? Is there any evidence that we can produce before believers and before unbelievers to say, look, this definitely is the revealed Word of God? That's the first question we're going to answer. And the second question we're then going to answer is this. If God really did write this book, how did he give it to the people who wrote the book? That is, to Moses, to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke and John. How did he reveal it to them? So let's take the first question first. What evidence is there that this is not just an ordinary book written a long time ago? And don't forget, parts of this were written 4,000 years ago and parts were written 2,000 years ago. What evidence is there? It's not just an ordinary ancient book, but it really has come from the throne room of God and that God himself is the author. And can I say that as soon as you begin answering that question, you've got two types of answer that you can give. You've got the type that will satisfy Christians, and you've got the type that ought to try and satisfy the non-Christian as well. And these two uh, evidences I call internal evidence. In other words, does the Bible say it's God's word? And that will satisfy me, but that won't satisfy the unbeliever. And so we've got to have external evidence as well connected with the Bible. So if you're an unbeliever, either listening to the tape or in the midst here, you're going to have to ignore this first bit. This bit won't impress you at all, but if you're a believer, this will impress you a lot. Let's have a look at the internal evidence first of all, and then we'll go on to the external evidence that ought to impress the unbeliever. And let's begin in Mark and chapter 12. And what I want to show the believers in the midst today is this, that in fact, God says that human authors actually wrote the book, but he then clearly says that he is the author. And Jesus is the best authority we can turn to. So we're turning to the Gospels, and in Mark chapter 12, and we'll be seeing a number of scriptures just to demonstrate the point, I want you to see how Jesus himself acknowledges that there was a human author, but then goes on to say it was definitely a divine author working through the human author. In Mark 12, verse 26 and 27, we have a quotation from Exodus 3 and verse 6, which, as we saw last time, was one of the books written by Moses. And in verse 26, Jesus uses the words of Moses to demonstrate part of the faith that he's putting over to the people. He says this, And as touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he draws the conclusion, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You do therefore greatly err. Now he says Moses wrote the book, he quotes it, but he says that God actually was the one who was speaking. 
and he draws certain conclusions. Look, you people who don't believe there's uh, life after death. Of course there's life after death. Even God himself said that he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob after they were dead. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Now there you've got it. Moses wrote the book, but it was God who was truly speaking. Just across the page, in verse 35 and 36, you actually have a quotation from a psalm that David wrote. Psalm 110. Now, did David write the psalm? Yes, he did. But does Jesus say that David is the author? Well, actually, he says something more than that. He says that God was the one who was speaking through that particular psalm. Verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David. For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost. Do you see that phrase? Oh yes, David wrote it, but it was God who inspired that particular scripture. And then there's the quotation from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And so he draws conclusions from that. So there you've got it. Jesus himself, yes, these people wrote the book, but it was God speaking through them. Paul does the same. If you go to Acts 28, Paul is doing exactly the same thing. And here he quotes Isaiah. But he says Isaiah wrote the book, but he says there's an author who is behind Isaiah, who was actually writing the book. In Isaiah 28 and verse 25, and by the way, I'm just giving you a few scriptures. That the Gospels go on and on and on. So it's the New Testament saying the same thing. Look, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, go unto this people, and say, hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive, for the heart of this people is waxed gross, and so it goes on. Now notice what it says, the end of verse 25. Well spake who? The Holy Spirit through Isaiah the prophet. So in other words, Isaiah wrote it, but it's God who actually wrote this thing. And by the way, what a parting shot to give them, right? He's just been giving them the gospel, they've rejected it, and he says, no wonder Isaiah wrote about you. You know, this people's heart has waxed gross. I normally end up speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses like that. So it's nice to find a, a passage that justifies my actions. All right, let's go on to Hebrews. Uh, see, just a few more in this book. Now, for Christians, this is good enough. You can actually locate most of the Old Testament books in the New Testament where it says God said. You see, and that's good enough for us. A non-Christian's totally unimpressed by this evidence. So don't try giving him this evidence, right? In Hebrews chapter 2, and this is really lovely, he quotes actually three passages in verse 12 and 13. Right? He quotes three major passages. But notice what he says in verse 11. And let's take it from verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now, who's he that sanctifies? Well, it's Jesus. Who are those who are sanctified? Well, this is good news for us. We're sanctified. Now, I know sanctification takes time, but in Christ we are already sanctified. Right? They're both one. For which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying. Now, notice that little word saying that begins verse 12. 
He is saying that Jesus says these words, and now what does he do? He quotes three passages from the Old Testament. And that little word saying actually says that Jesus was the one who actually inspired those words and said it. Let's read what Jesus said. First of all, Psalm 22, verse 22, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Who said that? David wrote it, but actually it was Jesus who said it. Verse 13 then goes on, and this is a quotation from 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. And again it says, I will put my trust in him. Who wrote that? Well, the writer to Samuel? No, it was actually Jesus who inspired that particular passage. And then the next one, which is Isaiah 8 and verse 18, and again, behold, I am the children which God has given me. Who said it? Jesus actually said it. Now, isn't that interesting? These ancient writers said it, but it was God who actually said it through the ancient writers. I think we'll uh, have a look at one or two others. If you go on to Hebrews and chapter 3, right, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, you've got a quotation from Psalm 95, David again, except in verse 7, before he quotes it, he says it's the Holy Spirit that is saying it. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, and so he goes on. But who said it? Well, verse 7, it's the Holy Ghost who said it. It wasn't just David. And I think just one more, otherwise I'm really going to labour the point too much. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15 and 16, now you have a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah wrote the book, but there was an author behind that book. And who is the author? Well, it's given in Hebrews 10, verse 15. Whereof? The Holy Ghost also is witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Jeremiah said it, the Holy Spirit was the one who was really saying it. Now do you see, that's internal evidence, and that for us means that we're not just reading man's words here, we're reading God's words. You suggest that to an unbeliever, and he'll say, well, of course, if the Bible didn't say that, it would be slightly foolish, wouldn't it? Of course a religious book that puts over a certain view is going to say that. But then he'll say, but the problem is that every religion has a religious book, and every religious book claims the same, that it is the inspired Word of God. Now, you've got to be able to answer that, and I've got to be able to answer it, and how do we do it? Well, fortunately for us, we are able to look at wonderful evidence in the Bible to show that this book is not just like any religious book of any religion. This book is quite astounding and is unique among the religious books. Do you know there is not one unscientific statement made in this book? And that is the thing that marks it off from all the other religious writings that there are. To show you what I mean, let me just give you an example. Do you know, in some of the Hindu Vedas, these are the religious writings of the Hindus, 
written, of course, before Christ, many of them, you have statements like this. I mean, they have a problem and they look at the world around and they have to sort of explain the world that they see around them. And one of the problems they had to explain was, well, how was the earth held up? I mean, what was holding the earth off? You know, off whatever it would fall onto if it didn't fall down. What was holding it up? And uh, the ancients uh, in, in the Hindu Vedas actually scratched their chins and said, oh, we've got a good idea. And this is what they said. You can read this from, for yourself in the Hindu Vedas. There it says that the earth is actually on the back of four elephants. And there are these four elephants. And the earth is balanced on their back. And they say, well, you see, that explains earthquakes. You see, because when the elephants shiver or scratch themselves or something, then the earth shakes under them and that's marvellous. The problem is with that, you then have another question. You have the question, well, what's holding the four elephants up? And they've got an answer to that as well. The Hindu Vedas actually say that under the four elephants, there's a gigantic, a huge turtle. And this turtle is swimming in the biggest sea you've ever seen. And so this is the picture. Can you visualize that, right? There's, there's the world, four elephants, a huge turtle, and it's swimming in the sea. And that's how the earth moves and, and so on. Now, you must ask yourself, is that a scientific statement? Well, they didn't know any different in those days, you see, and that was their idea. But can you see, that is an unscientific statement. We can prove that that's not the case. I mean, people have been out to outer space and there wasn't an elephant out there, you see, very definitely. Well, the Greeks came along, of course. The Greeks had another idea. They said there was this huge man called Atlas, and Atlas was carrying the earth on his back. Dear, oh dear, having put some of the chairs out, you know, here, I'm jolly glad I didn't have that job. But uh, Atlas was seen as carrying the earth on his back. These are unscientific statements. There are others that don't seem uh, as bad as that in these ancient writings. For example, do you know many of the ancients thought that the sun gave out light, but that the moon also gave out light, and that the moon had a separate source of light? And then if you said, but the moon is dimmer than the sun, they said, ah, oh, that's because it's further away. And some of the ancient writings actually say that the moon is 150,000 miles further out than the sun. Do you see? Now these are statements. And on the earth, there they were gazing up, and it made perfect sense to them. These are unscientific statements. And the good news for the Christian is this, that unlike the other religious books, which are full of these unscientific statements, do you know there's not one unscientific statement in the Bible? For example, what does the earth hang upon? What's holding the earth up? What does the Bible say is holding the earth up? Let's have a look at some of these uh, so-called scientific statements, shall we, in the Bible. Let's go to the book of Job and chapter 26. The book of Job, chapter 26, and I want to go through these fairly rapidly, if you don't mind. But in verse 7, we have an amazing statement. And by the way, when did Job say this? It was 4,000 years ago, when the idea of the earth being on the back of an elephant or a sea monster or something like that was quite reasonable. What was unreasonable was the statement Job made. They couldn't understand it. I mean, everything needs something to hold it up. And Job actually says this in verse 7, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. 
There's nothing holding the earth up. The earth's just holding itself up. That's what he says. There it is. He hangs the earth on nothing. And by the way, that's true. This is uh, millennia, thousands of years before Sir Isaac Newton defined uh, gravity, thousands of years before Kepler came along and talked about the laws of motion in the universe and so on. I mean, scientists didn't know this. But 4,000 years ago, it's in the book of Job. And you must ask yourself this question, well, how did Job know it? Could it be that perhaps the one who created the whole earth, who knew everything, might actually have been the author behind this particular passage? Just might be. And you might say, oh, well, Job struck it lucky on that one. Oh, no, he didn't. And in fact, what I want to do now is to give you quite a number of scientific statements in the Old and New Testaments that are really quite mind-boggling. There is no way you can explain them unless God is the author of this book. For example, let's have a look at this. Go to Isaiah 40. Now, this is a statement. Isaiah and chapter 40 and verse 22, and he's talking about God. And he makes a statement here. When was Isaiah written? Oh, only 2,700 years ago. That's all. Verse 22. It is he, it says, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, when in comparison. Now, what's so scientific about that? Well, it's marvellous, isn't it? In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for circle there is C-H-U-G. C-H-U-G. And the word in Hebrew means a sphere. God is the one who sits on the sphere of the earth. This is 2,700 years ago. But only a few hundred years ago, the top scientists were saying that the earth is flat. Many ancient people thought the earth was flat. You know, don't you, that the mariners of a few hundred years ago were afraid of going too far out into the ocean because they'd come to the edge of the world and fall off. That's what they thought. The people of the Middle East wouldn't dare go through the Straits of uh, Gibraltar. Many of them thought never to venture through the, the pillars of Hercules, as they were called. What? We'll drop off the edge of the earth. That's what they believed. And yet here is Isaiah saying quite clearly, it's a sphere. Do you know today, everyone knows the earth is a sphere. I understand in America there is a flat earth society, actually. <laughs> has about 4,000 members. And I have to tell you this, my little son is a member of it at the moment. Um, we, our latest theological and philosophical debate is whether the earth is round or flat. He, he says it's obviously flat. And I'm trying to convince him that, no, it's actually round. But, Daddy, it's not. It's flat. You can see it. Well, finally, I'll have to go to the Bible, I think, and say, look, David, God says it's round. And that's good enough. 2,700 years ago, that was the statement of Scripture. And scientists have come and gone on this whole issue, but in fact we've ended up actually able to prove that this is a scientific statement. All right, let's have another look at the Earth. Do you know that the Bible clearly says that the Earth spins on its axis? Now, we take certain things for granted. I mean, we know that the Earth is round, we know the sun, say, is over there, and we know that half the Earth receives daylight, while the other half is in night. You know that's true. Did you know that's true? Do you know that Zolabad and others in Los Angeles are in bed trying to get some sleep? Right? Did you know that? Um, while we are in daylight here, you see. But the ancients didn't know that. How could they know it? You see, to know that, you have to, first of all, be able to travel fast, 
right? Secondly, you need an accurate watch to be able to keep a watch of the, uh, of the time. But the ancients didn't have that. They had nothing like it. I mean, we have jet lag today. In the ancient world, you didn't get donkey lag. There's no such thing as donkey lag, right? Nothing. You traveled so slowly that in fact, wherever you went, you didn't notice that the time was changing. So they had this idea that all the people were at the same time throughout the earth. Well, the earth was flat, the sun was up above, and it was beaming down, it was the same time. You see? What does the Bible say? Does it say, well, all men are at the same time? No, it doesn't. A remarkable statement is made in Luke, for example. Go to Luke 17. I'll tell you something, you can read these things and you can pass over them, not realizing how wonderful these statements are. In Luke 17, Jesus here is talking about the second advent of Christ. The very moment that Jesus will come. This is not the rapture of the church. Don't let anyone try and convince you that this is the rapture of the church. If you are confused about that, you better listen to my tape on the rapture of the church. This is seven years after the rapture of the church at the second advent of Christ. Now look what he says, amazing statement, talking about it, right? Verse 34, I tell you, he says, in that night, so it's night there, there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. So it's night. But then it's day, verse 35. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. So the Lord is coming at a moment of time and guess what's going to happen? Some people are going to be in night. Others are going to be in day. The ancient world would have scratched their heads and thought, how is this possible? Well, it is possible, isn't it? Because the earth is round and the earth is spinning on its axis. That's a scientific statement. And by the way, if he'd said that everyone on the earth will be sitting down to their lunch and then I'll come, that would have been an unscientific statement. It's not true. He doesn't make any such statement. Now, this is remarkable. Let's have a look at a few others, right? I could go on all morning like this, but I'm actually only going to give you ten. Let's go to Jeremiah next. Jeremiah 33, verse 22. Jeremiah 33, verse 22. Again, another verse that you could read through and not realize how wonderful it is. In Jeremiah 33, verse 22, it says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. And you say, well, what's remarkable about that? Well, it's a statement here by Jeremiah, that's 2,600 years ago, that the stars are so great in number that no man can count them. And you say, well, so what? Everyone knows that. Yes, they do today. But do you know that it's only recently that scientists have come to that conclusion. 200 years ago, the top astronomer of the day said with all confidence, the number of stars is between 1,022 and 1,056. I've counted them, he said. There are no others. That's all there are. And so he said, there's a finite number. Jeremiah, 2,600 years ago, said no. The number of stars is totally uncountable. And by the way, do you know that with new... Uh, 
space telescopes being sent up, they expect to be able to see five times the number of stars that they can see at the moment, and that won't be the end of them. Well, there's a scientific statement. If uh, the Bible had said there are 1,022 stars, that would have been an unscientific statement. You see, there it is. The next one is most remarkable. I would like to see a non-Christian talk his way out of this one, right? Might have a go at those, I suppose. You try and talk your way out of this one. Let's go back to Job. Just before the book of Psalms, Job and that marvellous chapter, chapter 38. This is wonderful. And this is a, a passage in which God is trying to show Job how small he is and how big God is. And so he says, now Job, you keep talking to me like this. Please will you recognize that I am much bigger than you are. By the way, one of the things that uh, causes me to shudder in this day and age is the way Christians talk about God and talk to God. They seem to have forgotten the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some of them treat him as if he's the chap next door, you know, or the lodger in the loft, or something like this. Horrific. And I think they ought to read through Job 38. Now, God is talking about the physical creation. Now, he asked two questions in verse 31. In this little passage, you have three major constellations mentioned. But in verse 31, you have two of them. Here they are, the Pleiades and Orion. And he asks two questions, and this is what he's saying. He says, can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? And those of you with a modern translation will know that the word sweet influences is actually the word chain. He says, can you bind the chain of the Pleiades like I have? Are you able to, he says? And here it is, here's the picture of the seven sisters, that's the other name for the Pleiades, and God says, I put a chain right the way around them. He said, are you able to do that? Because I've done it. Are you able to? And then, to contrast that, he then says this, or loose the bands or the chain that's around Orion. And Orion is the mighty hunter. And he says, now, there was a chain around Orion, but I've loosed it, and Orion now is not chained. And you sit there and say, what on earth is this all about? A person who knows astronomy knows what this is talking about, absolutely. Let's take Orion first. Orion is like all the other constellations except for one in the universe, and that is that it's what is called an unbounded system. Uh, if you take the stars that belong to Orion, do you know that they're all moving away from one another? They're scattering away from one another. And that's why the shape of Orion is actually changing. Actually, that's happening to every group of uh, stars except for one in the heavens. Did you know that? Do you know that the plough, for example, now we look at the plough, but do you know that if you have a look at it in 200 years' time, it will be a different shape? Because all the stars that make up the plough are all moving away from one another. They're loosed, do you see? And they're heading away. Now, Orion is very unstable. And Orion, the stars in Orion, are shooting away from one another at a rate of knots. So Orion is changing shape greatly. And God says, there's no band around it. I've broken the band that kept those stars together, and they're all heading away from one another. Can you do that, Job, he says? So what's the first bit mean? The first bit is the opposite. He says that Pleiades, unlike Orion, has a band around it that is holding those stars together. And do you know, and this is a staggering statement, 
Do you know that as far as we know, the Pleiades is the only group of stars in the universe that is not shooting apart? All the others are. Fred Hoyle has actually estimated that the Pleiades will still look the same, exactly the same, as they are now in a thousand million years' time. They won't, actually, because the new heaven and new earth will be here. He doesn't know that. The only group of stars, as far as we know, which is a bounded system, that is, it is held together, is the Pleiades. And God says, Job, can you hold the stars in the Pleiades together like I have? This is 4,000 years ago he said this. We've only just discovered it, I mean fairly recently. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Or do you think it was just luck? He just chose the only one that happened to be a sort of bounded system. Is that right? No. God actually says, he's the one who created it, and listen, Job, I keep those stars together. Can you do it? I allow those to go their way. Can you do that? No, you can't. You see? A most remarkable uh, passage. You see? And that astronomer would actually recognise that that is remarkable. All right, keep your finger in Job. We'll be back to it. Let's have a look at the water cycle, shall we, in uh, Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, and chapter 1, you have what geographers call the water cycle. Nothing to do with bicycling, right, at all. This is the geographer's explanation, and it's a correct one, of where rainfall comes from. Verse 6 and 7. The wind, it says, goeth towards the south and turneth about unto the north. So there's a wind circulation. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. So the waters run into the, the sea, the water is then taken from the sea up. Right? And the whole cycle begins again. This is the water cycle. And you say, oh, well, everyone knows that. Oh, do they? Do they really? Well, well, well. Do you know that I have studied the history of geography? And it's quite an eye-opener, is the history of geography. Many of the things that you've been taught as fact weren't known a hundred years ago. It's quite staggering. And do you know that 250 years ago, the idea that was around in geographical circles about where rivers came from was entirely different to the water cycle. In fact, the chief uh, uh, expert on this was a, a Frenchman called Parrot, spelt parrot, right? And a bit of a burp brain. And this fellow, this fellow thought that all the mountains floated in the sea. And what he said was this. Now, this was a brilliant idea. How do rivers form at the top of mountains and flow down to the sea? Well, this is how it happens, he said. You see, the mountains float in the sea, and the weight of the mountain pushes water up holes in the mountains, and the salt gets filtered out, and they bubble up out the top of the mountain, and then it flows down again. Isn't that a good idea? That's Monsieur, not Poirot, but Parrot's idea about rivers. That's 250 years ago. That was the latest scientific thinking. True? No. Rubbish. When was Ecclesiastes written? 3,000 years ago and he got it right. Well, well, well. I mean, is Solomon such a brilliant chap that he understood all about geography? I suggest 
No. What I do suggest is that perhaps God is the author behind it. I would say this is scientific uh, fact about this. Let's have a look at a few others, shall we? I hope I'm not going on too much about this. It's all useful evidence, isn't it? Back in Job, Job 25, verse 5, the ancients thought the moon shone by itself. What does the Bible say? 4,000 years ago, Job says this in verse 5, Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. And the implication is it has no light of its own. Definitely not. You see, there's a, a verse, you can use that if you want. Go to Job 28, Job 28, verse 25, speeding up just slightly. Job 28, 25, and again, I'll take it out of context if you don't mind. It says, to make the weight for the winds, and he weigheth the waters by measure. So in other words, there's a statement that air weighs something. Do you know, by the way, at this moment, you have a vast weight of air pressing down on you. Did you know that? Every person in this room, right? Feel slightly depressed this morning? This might be the explanation, <laughs> right? You have several tons of air actually pushing down on you. Why don't we collapse? I'll tell you why, because the air inside of you is pushing out at the same pressure. Isn't that good news? Right? Actually, Weight Watchers might, this might catch on. There might be a new way of losing weight in all of this. I don't know. But you see, air has weight. Oh, but everyone knows that. No, they don't. Do you remember the old experiment that physics teachers used to give us at school? I don't know whether they still do, do they? Do they? Oh, about um, the tin that's attached to a vacuum pump. Yes? And you pump the air out, and the tin goes. Right? Do you remember that one? And the point they're trying to say isn't that the tin is being sucked in. They keep making the point, no, it's being pushed in by the weight of air that's all around. Do we still do that experiment? We still do. Well, science doesn't change too much, does it? But there we are. Air has weight. But who, who was the first chap to find that out? Why? It was uh, Signor Torricelli, wasn't it? And this uh, Italian climbed up mountains holding big tubes filled with water. Do you remember all of this? How many of you remember this, your school days? Would you just put your hands up? Sure. Well, that's not many. <laughs> so Job knew 4,000 years ago, ago what most of you have forgotten. <laughs> and Mr. Torricelli, instead of reading Job, he started climbing mountains with these tall tubes filled with water, you see? Just to prove that the air had weight. But if he'd read the book of Job, he could have discovered that for himself. This is recent science, and yet it's 4,000 years ago. I'll give you a few more. Psalm 19. Now, this is talking about the sun. You know, don't you, that many of the ancient people felt that the earth was still and the sun went round the earth. Some of the ancient peoples felt the sun was still and that the earth went round the sun. We now know that the sun isn't still. Do you know, by the way, at this moment you're moving at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour? Did you know that? Fortunately, so are the rest of us, so you're not in any trouble. <laughs> the only problem would come if you were moving fast and the chair wasn't, you see. Now, but we now know this. One, we are turning round on the earth. Two, at the same time, the Earth is moving round the Sun. Three, at the same time, the Sun and the whole solar system is rushing through space. We know that's a fact. Psalms was written 3,000 years ago, and it knew it was a fact as well. Psalm 19, the end of verse 4. 
In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Now he's talking about the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run the race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. A statement that the sun is actually moving throughout the heavens. From one end of the heavens to the other, the sun is dashing. How did he know? He didn't know. But God knew who is the real author behind it. Do you see? These are quite... Oh, I could go on. Let's not turn to this one. Do you know uh, Leviticus 17.11? Now, if you don't know that, can I say it's heap powerful medicine is Leviticus 17.11. If you want to give the devil a real fright, you just hang that up in your house sometime. The life is in the blood, it says. Very powerful verse. Oh, Leviticus was written how long ago? 3,500 years ago? 3,600 years ago? About that time. Right. Do you know that we only discovered that the life was in the blood in 1628, when Dr. Harvey, who discovered the circulation of the blood, discovered it? Well, and they say the Bible's an old-fashioned book. Well, well, well. I would say that it's a book that's well ahead of its time, according to all of this. All right, the last example let me give. I want to quote to you the laws of hygiene that were given to the Jews in the law. The laws of hygiene are fantastic. Any doctor today reading the laws of hygiene given in the book of Leviticus would be astounded by them. What were the Jews told to do? The Jews were told that as far as excrement was concerned, they were to dig a hole and to put it in the hole and to cover up the hole. They were told to wash their hands. They were told that if they touched a diseased person or a dead body, they were to go wash their hands, wash their clothes, and lay them out in the sun for 24 hours. And do you know the sun acts as an antiseptic, a bleach, right? It kills off all the germs. That's what they were told to do. Don't touch a dead body, they said. Don't go anywhere near it. They said, if a man has a contagious disease, this is what you do. First of all, you identify it's contagious, and then the man must be put into quarantine. Let's just see that, shall we? Right, the law of quarantine. Go to Leviticus 13. Leviticus 13. Verse 45 and 46. And it says here about the leper. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, his head bare, he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, unclean, unclean. Now, this is remarkable, right? Let's just go through the verse, shall we? The leper is to do certain things. First of all, it's to get rid of his clothing. You take the clothes off, and you dispose of them, right? Because the leprosy can be carried in clothing. He's to shave his head completely, to give a warning, to cover his mouth, like this, and he's to shout, unclean, unclean. Then he's to be quarantined. Verse 46, all the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean, he shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall be his habitation. That's quarantine. All these laws were written thousands of years ago, yet do you know that it's only in the last 80 to 100 years that we as a society and Europe as a society have started applying these laws? We think we're so modern, we're so proud. I would suggest the Bible had it first. Do you know there was a, a doctor called Dr. Samuel Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. And in 1840... That's 140 years ago. He was professor 
of a hospital in Vienna. And this man was in charge of maternity. Now, in those days, this is what was happening. Do you know, in those days, the doctors would go down, they cut up a dead body to try and find out what was wrong with this dead body. They'd wipe the blood off their hands, then they'd go upstairs and deliver a baby. And that, to them, was perfectly good, if they bothered to wipe their hands at all. I mean, there was no point. They were going to get bloody again. You didn't want to wash your hands too much. And as a result of this, when Dr. Samuel Weiss went to the University of Vienna and the medical school there, one in every six women were dying in childbirth. One in every six died in childbirth of some dreadful disease. Terrible. And in April of 1840, 57 women died in one month in Vienna. And it was Dr. Samuel Weiss who thought, well, this can't go on. And he actually told all of his doctors that they must wash their hands between every case. Wasn't quite sure why, but felt it was a good idea. And the doctors started washing their hands, right? We have no information about May, but in June, instead of one in six, it was one in 42 women who died. In April, one in six, they started washing their hands. In June, one in 42 died. The next month, it was one in 84 died. Now, isn't that remarkable? And you might have said, oh, this was such a breakthrough. Oh, it sure was. Do you know what happened? All the doctors complained about him. They were washing their hands too much. And he was dismissed from the hospital in Vienna. He then went on to a hospital in Budapest. And do you know exactly the same thing happened? He was dismissed. They wouldn't do it. It's staggering. Yet he was only doing what the Bible said he ought to do. And it worked. You see, it was only when Louis Pasteur came along that they actually found why washing of hands was good. And may I say, many people in our society, if they were more scrupulous about washing their hands and things like this, they'd live a very much healthier life than they actually do. And we've got to start obeying these particular laws, you see. Do you know when the plagues swept through Europe, the Black Death and the other plagues, do you know there was one community that was untouched by the plagues and it was the Jewish community? Hardly any Jew died from the Black Death. It ravaged the populations of European nations. Hardly a Jew died. Do you know why? They were obeying the laws given in the book of Leviticus. That's why. And what did the people do? They put two and two together and they made five. They said, oh, we've noticed these Jews never catch the plague. It must be them that are causing the plague and making us sick. And a terrible persecution began against the Jews because of that. Now, what am I trying to say? These are external pieces of evidence. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Oh, and by the way, what about those of you who are sitting there thinking, oh, how can you say it's a scientifically accurate book when you've got six days of creation mentioned in the beginning of Genesis? Now, listen here, right? Those of you who are thinking that. Everything I've given you so far can be actually proved. Creation cannot be proved one way or t'other. You see, to prove it, you've actually got to go back there and witness the thing. And there was only one witness, and that's God. That's why I prefer to believe God's account. And that's why, whenever you're talking about origins, we must insist that teachers and others put these words, the theory of, in front of what they believe. It's only a theory. Now, some scientists come along, they look at the facts that we've got, and they say that the theory of evolution best fits the facts. 
I, as a creationist, say I don't believe that. I believe that the facts best fit the story that's given in the Bible. And by the way, there are many, many non-Christian scientists today who are rejecting evolution. Did you know that? Fred Hoyle is one. I've forgotten the man who works with Fred Hoyle, the Indian doctor. I've forgotten his name, unpronounceable name. But this chap doesn't believe in evolution. He doesn't believe the Bible either. But this man says to believe in evolution is to believe that a whirlwind went into a junkyard and after it had been in there for an hour, you ended up with a jumbo jet. <laughs> said if you believe that, you can believe evolution. Now that's not me talking, that's not a bigoted Bible fundamentalist. That's one of the world's top scientists speaking today. Now isn't that staggering? I reject that. Don't you say the Bible is unscientific because of that. The things I've given you can be proved. Creation cannot be proved one way or t'other. All you can do is fit the facts as best you can to the particular theory that you have actually got, you see? By the way, let me give you this little equation. I reject evolution because what evolution says is that there was nobody and there was nothing and put them together and you get everything. I think that's a crazy equation. Nothing, there's nothing. Nobody to do anything with the nothing. And suddenly, kapow, a big bang. Don't know where the material came from, but pow, it went. And everything came from that. Well, well, well. I prefer to believe that there was nothing, right? And somebody called God. And together, everything came. To me, that's much more logical sort of equation, you see? All right, now these are a few things. I could have given you others. I mean, do you know in Job 38, verse 35, it actually says that messages can be sent by electricity. You have a look that up for yourself, right? Um, do you also know, shall I say that again, Job 38, verse 35? Look it up for yourself. Uh, do you know the theory of isostasy and continental drift? is in the Bible as well. And so we could go on and on and on. Do you know that Paul says that the growth comes from the head? And he said that long before they discovered the pituitary gland, which is in the head, which actually governs the growth of the body. They didn't even know it existed. But Paul knew how? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see? And so you get to it. I could go on and on and on. Do you know that the, the archaeologists always said that um, the Hittites were a minor hill tribe, minor hill tribe, that the Bible's totally wrong when it says that the Hittites were a great empire. Totally wrong. Oh, no, it's not wrong. And in fact, now, scientists have discovered, archaeologists, that the Hittites were as big as the Bible says that they were. A passage that was always laughed at in the Bible was Isaiah chapter 20. Oh, the number of books that were written to laugh at the Bible because of Isaiah chapter 20, where it says, In that year, in the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. And everyone laughed because they'd looked at all the Assyrian king lists and no one called Sargon was mentioned. Ha! The Bible says there was a king of Assyria called Sargon. Absolute rubbish. We haven't found him anywhere. The Bible's wrong again. Only one verse, probably a mistake. Oh, really? And then what did they do? They discovered the palace of Sargon. And then not only the palace, they discovered the whole of his library as well. We have more information on Sargon than on most of the other Assyrian kings. The Bible was right yet again. Right? So I'll give you one more. 
I'm sorry if I'm laboring this too much. I can't resist. Go to 2 Kings. This is a nice one, right? 2 Kings. 2 Kings 18, verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me, that which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. There it is. So Hezekiah had to pay the king of Assyria 300 talents of silver, that's a weight of silver, and 30 talents of gold. Now archaeologists who were digging in the palaces of, of Assyria found this agreement written in Assyrian. You know, cuneiform. There it was. And when they read it, it said, King Hezekiah will pay me 30 talents of gold, that agreed, and 800 talents of silver. <laughs> Another mistake in the Bible. You see? Definitely the archaeologists write 800 talents of silver. The Bible's wrong, 300 talents of silver. Well, well, well. The Bible was wrong. Do you know, it was another 50 years after that, they discovered that as far as gold was concerned, the Jews and Assyria had the same weight. But as far as silver was concerned, they had a different weight. And when they worked it out, they found that 300 talents of silver to the Jews was equal to 800 talents of silver to the Assyrians. And the Bible wasn't as inaccurate as they said. Well, so we could go on and on. By the way, I haven't mentioned prophecy. Why? Because I've done 14 tapes on fulfilled prophecy. That's why. <laughs> the Bible's also full of prophetic statements. It goes on and on and on with prophetic statements. And what does it mean? A prophetic statement is a statement about history that's written before the historical event occurred. The Bible's absolutely full of them. I suggest to you that all this evidence proves that it is God who is the author of the Bible and not man. I mean, do you know in Psalm 22, crucifixion was prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, and listen, 300 years before it was invented. You know, don't you, the Romans learnt it from the Phoenicians. And before the Phoenicians learnt it, the Bible, 300 years before, the Bible had it mentioned. Right? I will pierce his hands and his feet. And so it goes on. Remarkable. Micah 5.2 Right? 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah said he'll be born in Bethlehem. And if Mary, by the way, had been six weeks early or six weeks late, they'd have missed Bethlehem. That's staggering. But dead on the bullseye, kapow, 700 years after God said it would happen, it happens. I mean, you couldn't, she couldn't have done that if she tried, could she? Right? As those of us who've waited for children to arrive know full well. You can't plan them like that. They'll come when they're ready to come. Right? Incidentally, I was speaking when David was born. I had a conference coming up and we prayed. We said, Lord, um, you know, just make David on time, won't you? And I said to Ross, I'm sure he's going to be on time and two weeks will go past and I'll be nice and fresh again, ready for the conference. Was he on time? No, he wasn't. Two weeks late, he arrived right in the middle of the conference. Well, well, well. Well, there we are. What can you say? You see, the babies will arrive. Yet Micah had it right. Now, all of these things demonstrate to us, and these, this is external evidence, that the Bible is scientifically and historically accurate in its original manuscripts. So that's the first question answered. Is there evidence? 
that the Bible really is the word of God, that God is the author, I would suggest to you, yes, and there's an awful lot of it as well. So now the ball is in the court of the unbeliever to try and explain this away. Right? Good luck to them. Right? I don't believe in luck, but they do, so good luck. And I hope you have a fine time. You won't be able to actually do it. All right, now that's a, a complicated thing. But the second question now I want to ask is this. As we know this is the Word of God, and yet written by human authors, how did God actually cause them to know what to write? And here we have a word, and it's the word inspiration. And in fact, we've got to actually learn two words which come together, and we've got to understand the difference between them. The words are... First of all, revelation, and the word inspiration. There it is. And there's a world of difference between those two. Revelation is anything that God has revealed. Anything. Inspiration is that which is revealed that is caused to be written down. And we can show the relationship between these two by two circles. Revelation is a big circle. God has revealed an awful lot, but he's only caused some of it to actually be written down. Do you know there are things that God has revealed to man that have been forgotten? Did you know that? For example, we don't know when Jesus was born. Now, he's restoring that to us, but actually people have forgotten it. Do you see? And let me show you the relationship between these two. Go to that lovely passage in John 21. Now, I really love this verse 24 and 25 of John 21. I told you there was a lot of scripture in this morning's Bible study, right? Tonight won't be, well, just one scripture I think it is. John 21, verse 24 and 25, and this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Now, do you see, in Jesus' lifetime, there was a huge amount that was uncovered. Jesus went around saying things and doing things. A vast number of things were revealed. But the only ones we've got are those that are written in this book. This is the inspired remnant. The rest has gone from us. By the way, one day we're going to know it all. One of the things we can look forward to in heaven is to actually see the whole life of Jesus day by day by day by day by day. We're going to actually see a replay of blind Bartimaeus. Isn't that going to be wonderful? You know, praise the Lord. It's going to be thrilling. But there we are. Now, revelation, therefore, is bigger than inspiration. All right, now what do we mean by inspiration? Well, let's go to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, and chapter 3, and verse 16. And this is a statement about it, and an important one. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is given by what? By inspiration of God. Now, this is not the same 
as the word as it's used in the world. You know, sometimes you say, oh, Shakespeare's a really inspired writer, right? Or Jasper Carrot's really inspired, or whatever. <laughs> it's nothing like that at all, you see. By that, you simply mean that he's got a very clever brain and he can think up some good ideas, you see. The word inspired used in the Bible is the word God-breathed. That's what it means. It's God and breath, the two words put together. And what it says is this, that even though you have human authors, God was breathing his word into what they were writing. God is the source of the scriptures. Now, this doesn't mean it was in personal dictation. You know, take a letter, uh, Matthew, will you? Um, like I do, I have a little dictaphone, you know, and uh, I have a lovely lady who types all my letters for me, and I say, well, here we go again, number one, uh, to Mr. Jonathan so-and-so, uh, living at so-and-so, uh, greetings in the name of Jesus. I have read your letter with great interest, blah, 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 blah. Now, nothing of this woman who types for me comes through those letters, except if I say, oh, you reply to this one, right? <laughs> That's not how he did it. That would be impersonal dictation. No, no. What we mean by inspiration is that God supervised the writing. But actually, the character and style of the writer comes through. It's lovely, this combination. I mean, you can read certain books of the Bible, and you know what the person was like who wrote them, right? Do you know the best Greek in the New Testament is found in the book of Hebrews? We don't know who wrote it, but whoever it was, a very intelligent man, an intellectual, who could really write Greek well. We know that Luke was very intelligent. The Greek in, in Acts and Luke is superb. You know that Luke's a doctor. When he talks about the camel going through the eye of a needle, it's not the normal needle used in sewing. It's a surgical needle. It's a different word in Greek. And there the doctor writes it. Is it fascinating stuff? So you can learn something, you know. And one day, I'd love to do a Bible study, whether I'll get time in my short life or not, I don't know, on um, the use of vocabulary in Luke and Acts. You can really learn a lot about Luke through the use of the vocabulary. You can tell that Peter wasn't very good at Greek, right? You can also tell he was coming to the end of his life and he wasn't really quite well when he wrote 2 Peter. The Greek in 2 Peter is appalling Greek. It's even ungrammatical at certain points. But God, nevertheless, was the one who breathed the word into them. You see? And that's why it's described best in 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says that men were moved by the Holy Ghost. Moved by the Holy Ghost. And the picture is of a ship being blown by the wind. The ship and the shape of the ship actually directs something of its course. But it's the wind that is behind the movement and the direction. Do you see? And these men wrote these books, but it was the breathing of the Holy Ghost through them that was writing these things. And they wrote things that they didn't even know at times. The Holy Spirit brought back to their minds the very words of Jesus. Which is lovely, you see? All right, now let's have a look at this again. Notice the word in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Now the word scripture is used very carefully. The word scripture is only used of holy writings. Writings that have God's breath in them. And some people say, well, you see, this verse says that the Old Testament is inspired. It says nothing of the New Testament. 
I don't have to tell you which groups say that, but uh, certain groups do say that, you see. That when it says scripture here, it means the Old Testament. Yeah, but the lovely thing is, there are passages that use the word scripture about, first of all, the words of Jesus, and the words of Paul, which is lovely, right? Can I show you one of these? Go to 1 Timothy 5.18, and this is, I was going to say, delicious. This is lovely. In 1 Timothy 5... And for once, I'm not going to read verse 17. I try and get that verse in whenever I can, about uh, Bible teachers having double honor. Uh, but in verse 18, this is what it says, right? And the word scripture means a holy writing that's come from God. He, he says this, for the scripture saith, and then he quotes two passages. First of all, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now that's from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. And he's saying that's an inspired writing. Fair enough. And then he adds another one. And it also says, the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now the question is, where's that found? Well, it's not found in the Old Testament at all. It's actually the words of Jesus in Luke 10, verse 7. Now here you have the word scripture applied to the words of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is this, that the Gospels are also now part of the inspired word of God. Isn't that lovely? Paul's writings come in as well. Go now to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And here he's talking about the writings of Paul. I'm going to cut in in the middle of the context. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Isn't that a relief? And that's official. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lord. You know the trouble we have. Hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. And the word other there means of the same type. So they try and rest those scriptures and the writings of Paul, these other scriptures. Do you see? There is the use of the word scripture related to the writings of Paul. So the, we can see here that God has breathed these scriptures and they include the Old and the New Testament. You might ask, well, what about the other books? Well, let's just take the book of Revelation. Do you know that when John wrote the book of Revelation, he'd have been appalled if you had said that he had written that book. Right throughout the book, he claims that it has a higher authority than he's got. Do you know, it keeps using that phrase, doesn't it? Here, let the churches hear or he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He didn't write it. It was the Holy Spirit through him that wrote this. Right? And right at the end of Revelation, to show you what a high um, pedestal of authority is this book, look what he says right at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 22, verse 19, or verse uh, 18 and 19. And I suggest that he's not saying this about his own writing, but about his writing because it is the word of God. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. 
And believe you me, in the tribulation there will be religious people who will try and use the book of Revelation to support themselves, and they'll do it by adding to the book. That will simply show the believers of that day that this is a man who's going to be judged by the tribulation, a false prophet. Then it says, verse 19, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And in the tribulation that's also going to occur. And these will be the unbeliever, the unbelievers of those days. You see? Appalling. By the way, you know the Reader's Digest has done this. Do you know the Reader's Digest has brought out the Bible and they paraphrased it? They've chopped it about so that it's readable. You know, well, this is a bit unwieldy and unreadable, isn't it? So <clears throat> they've reduced the Gospels down to just one Gospel, you see? And uh, they've taken away all sorts of... They've chopped the Bible about. They've reduced it down to a quarter or a third of its size. Amazing. And you might say, but what about this? i tell you what they've done. They've missed this out. Isn't that they've cut it out. Isn't that convenient? Well, 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 well. Now, do you see, all of this shows us that it is God who is the one who breathed this word into existence. And that's why we claim that this book is not the work of man. It is actually the work of God himself. It has the character of man throughout it. It's got the vocabulary of man throughout it, but it's actually God's word. And the word itself testifies. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let me just end this morning session by just saying this. You just have to look at the life of Jesus to know that he put the word of God as an authority. Don't you? Right? He believed in a literal Adam. He believed in a literal Eve. He believed in a literal creation, a literal fall. He believed in Noah and the flood. He believed in Jonah. He believed in Isaiah, in Elijah. He believed in, uh, you know, these other people, David. He believed what happened to Jonah really did happen to Jonah. And I'll tell you this, Jesus was the one who shows us how we should use the Scripture as the basis of our life and as the authority in our life. And you have only three alternatives from the example of Jesus. One, that the Bible is authoritative, that it's infallible and inerrant. That's the first alternative, and that's the one we plump for. There are two other alternatives. The second alternative is this, that the Bible is full of false information, but Jesus didn't know it was false. So that when he believed in it, he didn't know he was believing in rubbish. Can we accept that? Of course we can't. What that would mean is that Jesus wasn't God. Or, the third alternative is even worse, that Jesus knew that the Old Testament was rubbish, but he lied to us. Again, that impugns the character of Jesus. The thing we learn from Jesus is that the Bible is authoritative, that it is the guide for our life, that we can get correct doctrine, and that that doctrine really is factually correct. Praise his wonderful name. That's what you learn from Jesus. Anything else is unthinkable to the Christian. All right, tonight we're going on to another gritty problem. And this problem is one that you will come across. For people often say to us, how do you know that this Bible is the same Bible that Jesus knew and that David actually wrote 
and that Moses actually wrote. I mean, it's a long time ago. How do we know that these words here haven't changed over the last two to four thousand years? It's a very valid point and one that we have to answer. But let's just pray for this morning. Hallelujah, Lord. Praise you. Hallelujah. Praise your wonderful name, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity of revealing these things. Hallelujah. We thank you for all the things we've learnt this morning. Father, we pray, Lord, that we should not forget these things, but that, Father, we should tuck them away, ready to use them whenever the occasion demands. Father, for all our brothers and sisters who can't be with us today, and I think especially of members of our fellowship, Lord, a huge number of whom are away on holiday, we ask you to bless them. And may they receive the blessing from this day, even though they're not here. Just bless all those who've been unable to come this morning. Father, may we see revival hit this land, and may we play our part to the full in that revival. Thank you for your word. Thank you we can trust it. Thank you that it is the rock, the foundation of our lives. Hallelujah. Thank you for Jesus, who gives us such a marvellous example of using the Word of God. And just bless us tonight as we learn of the wonderful men who laid down their lives that we might have this text of the Bible before us. Father, may we not forget ancient men, nor our fathers that begat us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.